Our passage this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you for his coming which none of us would have expected to happen like this. And we thank you for a man named Simeon, who by your spirit saw this baby for who he really was. Spirit, would you open our eyes today to see the Christ for who he really is, that we might all be transformed more and more into his image. Lord, come and help us and teach us your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After Christmas, it's really easy to turn the page put the stuff away, and move on, unless you're preaching. I spent the week thinking about how strange Christmas is. Have you ever thought about that? Christmas is both a Christian holy day and a major secular holiday, which is unique. It fuels everything from Black Friday to family gatherings to religious worship. Sometimes we really don't know what to do with Christmas. So some of us get overly sentimental about it. Our song, the song of the sentimental, would be, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. And the sentimental person would think, if we can just get to the holiday season, everything will be all right. But then it passes, as you may have experienced this week. On the other side, you you might see some of us get overly cynical about Christmas. We're too cranky for singing, but we have our saying, bah humbug. We're the Christmas music police reporting anyone who's trying to play Christmas music before Thanksgiving. You know who you are out there. We really don't think another Christmas is really going to do much good at all. So if you're sentimental, you're excited that here we are talking Christmas one more morning. And if you're cynical, you're frustrated that we're still singing these songs talking about this stuff. So what do we do? How do we reconcile songs full of peace and love and joy with a world full of hatred and sadness and war? As hard as we try to have a perfect Christmas, Christmas always seems to bring conflict, doesn't it? We see it in the malls and stores, people brawling. We see it around dinner tables at our own house. We see it even in our hearts. What what does it mean to get Christmas right? 
This morning we meet Simeon, a man who by God's grace amazingly seems to do just that. Simeon is waiting for the coming of Christ. But he also knows that Jesus' appearing creates a real crisis for everyone. This baby brings conflict that ultimately only he can resolve. And every conflict we see could find its roots and its resolution here in the conflict of Christmas. Is that what you think about when you think Christmas? Conflict? That's what we're talking about this morning. We we don't like to talk about conflict, but that's where we're going today. Because if we don't face it, we're doomed to be overly sentimental or overly cynical about, about Jesus and Christmas. So I want us to see three aspects of the conflict today. First, Christmas brings our hopes and dreams into conflict. Second, Christmas brings God and humanity into conflict. And third, Christmas brings our personal lives into conflict. So first, Christmas brings our hopes and dreams into conflict. We, we know so little about Simeon. Don't you want to know more about this man? In verse 25, you'll see that he lives in Jerusalem. He's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Why? Well, he's, he's living like this because the Holy Spirit is upon him. And the Spirit has revealed to him that he won't see death until he sees the Lord's Christ. So Simeon's life is defined by waiting. All his hopes and dreams are focused here on the rescuer that God has promised. A life defined by waiting. Anyone want to sign up for that? Probably not you, probably not me, definitely not my four-year-old son, Will. Whenever we tell Will about something exciting that's coming, Will has this one question that I love. He says, after this nap, In other words, will Christmas or my birthday or this exciting trip, will it finally be here after this nap? Don't we all want the waiting to end after this nap? One night I was reading with Will at bedtime, which he calls his big nap. And I picked up, Oh, the Places Will Go by Dr. Seuss. It's been a while since I've read that. So I just walked into it expecting unbridled optimism, the kind of message that is fitting for graduates, but the rest of us maybe not. And then I stumbled into this. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space headed, I fear, toward a most useless place, the waiting place for people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Do you know the waiting place? We all do. Because if we're human, we're waiting. Everyone is just waiting for something. We know some things, but not everything. We have some things. We usually want other things. We never know who might walk into our life and change things. We're in the middle, but we don't really know the ending. So we have to wait for big things and small things. The big question is, for what are we ultimately waiting? What are the hopes and dreams that drive us? God reveals to Simeon that he won't die until he sees the Christ. That's big. Something that big puts other hopes and dreams in their place. 
And that's the conflict of Christmas. When the hope of all the earth arrives, all our other hopes are exposed. Jesus forces us to ask, for what are we really hoping? We don't always think about it, but here are a few questions that might help us to identify our hopes and dreams. Where do our thoughts run when we daydream? What are our greatest fears? What are our nightmares? What do we think will bring us the greatest joy? These are the questions that help us chase down what we're really waiting for. But there's another word that often gives us away. We usually use it without realizing it, but it carries a lot of weight. It's the word just. Have you ever said, I just wish life were easier? If I could just get this job, if I could just make a little more money, if I could just get out of this job and retire, if I could just get these people to accept me, if I could just find the right person, if I could just get my kids to behave, if I could just fill in the blank. And if we're just hoping for that, that is our functional God. That is the thing we worship. That is the thing that gives us meaning and purpose. And if we're ultimately waiting for that, we're not really waiting for Jesus because our hope is in something else. So I want you to imagine this scene in Luke 2, 27. Simeon, full of the spirit, goes to the temple and then Mary and Joseph arrive with their baby. What does Simeon see? How does he know? Suddenly he's moving towards them. He's taking Jesus up in his arms. Now what are they thinking? Who is this guy? Maybe they know him, maybe they don't. Why is he taking our baby? And now after all of his waiting, Simeon holds his hope in his hands. Simeon holds in his hands the only hope that will never let him down. The only one who now and forever is truly worth the wait. Simeon holds his savior in his hands. It's a baby. What are we holding in our hands? What do we long to hold? A person, a possession, a title, maybe an experience or greater sense of security. If that thing has eclipsed Jesus in our hearts, it's no longer safe for us to hold. Simeon's holding a helpless baby, but this is the one who holds all things together. And Jesus has come to expose the emptiness of our hopes and dreams that don't have anything to do with him and to offer himself to us as a better hope. He invites us to release the white knuckle grip so that we can receive him for all he is. Are you holding so much that you can't really experience being held in his grip? Did you catch what Simeon says when he sees Jesus? He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon may have nothing else, but now he has Jesus and that's enough for him. He's ready to go. He's basically saying, I am ready to die. What are you waiting for? If you get it, will you finally have peace? Will you be ready to go? There's only one answer that gives us this kind of peace. It's a just thing again, but it's just Jesus, just Jesus. So Christmas brings our hopes and dreams into this conflict, and it also brings God and humanity into conflict. Jesus had been circumcised when he was eight days old, and now Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple in Jerusalem when he's about six weeks old. They're new parents, so imagine they're still figuring it out. They're still probably not sleeping through the night. 
but they come in obedience to God's law to present their child and offer a sacrifice. Mary and Joseph bring a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. It's the provision made in Leviticus 12.8 for people who can't afford a lamb. So think about it. They're road weary. They're poor. They're just doing the best that they can. And now Simeon turns maybe what they thought would be a routine trip to the temple completely upside down. What do you do when a man picks up your baby and calls him God's salvation? There's no playbook at this point. Jesus can't even talk yet. Simeon looks at him and sees the Savior. On the surface, that sounds like wonderful news. Joseph and Mary, they marvel at what Simeon says about their child. But here again, we see the conflict of Christmas lurking. The coming of Christ shines a light on the rift between God and humanity. Because what does a Savior imply? A savior means we need saving. We're lost. A savior means our sin has separated us from God and we can't find our way back. A savior means God has to do it. We can't fix this mess on our own. A savior means that Christmas is not sentimental. Sorry for those of you who might be sentimental. Don't let the manger scene fool you because Christmas is D-Day in God's plan of redemption. God's putting boots on the ground, his boots. Jesus is invading his own world to make all things new. We should have seen it coming. As early as Genesis 3.15, God promises someone's coming who's going to crush the serpent. Christmas means that someone has finally arrived. Tiny feet that would fit in Simeon's hand are actually the feet of the snake crusher. But the glory of his coming says something not so glorious about us. So Christmas is an indictment. Because if we're doing so well, why would God have to do this? If things aren't that bad, why would God have to come, put on flesh, and die? We want good news, but many of us don't want to deal with the bad news that might come with it. We want salvation and self-esteem. But Christmas knocks us down. It's the gift that humbles us. Maybe you've received a gift like this before. What if I gave you deodorant and a toothbrush for Christmas? Or what if I gave you vegetables and a gym membership? You would probably say, what are you saying about me? This gift feels like an indictment. No gift levels us like the gift of God's son. We are so sinful that Christ had to come. But he loves us so much that he was more than willing to come. The bad news humbles us so the good news can thrill us. And Simeon knows it's good news, not just for him, but for the whole world. He says about Jesus that he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to God's people, Israel. He's come to save his people from every tribe and every tongue. Now, if Simeon would just stop there, Mary and Joseph have enough to ponder and enjoy for a lifetime. But he keeps talking. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is imposed, sorry, a sign that is opposed. You can almost feel Mary's heart shift from wonder, this is awesome, to worry, oh my. A savior means some will receive him, but some won't. Some will embrace him and rise and some will reject him and fall. And what will that mean for Jesus? For the last month, we've been focusing on these different signs and wonders in Luke's gospel around Christ's coming. So Baron Elizabeth having a child, Zechariah being made mute and then talking again, a virgin conceiving, 
A baby lying in a manger, angels rejoicing, shepherds visiting. Mary treasures up all these glorious signs and wonders, ponders them in her heart. But now she learns that her baby is appointed to be a sign that is opposed. This is a different kind of sign. This is a disturbing sign. And it won't take her long to feel it. Jesus was opposed by Herod right away, who tried to kill him by murdering all the boys born in Bethlehem around that time. There's not a lot of Christmas songs about that. But the conflict of Christmas was felt immediately. And then during his life on earth, Jesus was opposed by Satan, religious leaders, political leaders, even his own disciples at times. In the end, he would be opposed by all of us. Isaiah predicts in chapter 53, he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus has come to resolve the conflict between God and us. But in order to give us his peace, he has to face our violence. Jesus is crucified as a sign that is opposed. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of the world opposing God. But praise the Lord, it's also the ultimate demonstration of God loving us. Hallelujah, what a savior. The coming of Christ is an indictment for all of us. Because Jesus identifies our deepest problem and presents himself as the only solution. So Christmas is a crisis for everyone. What are we going to do with this child born in Bethlehem? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So we have to decide. Not deciding is the decision. Because we can't remain neutral when we encounter Christ. And we can't remain neutral when we encounter Christ and his people. Missionary and martyr Jim Elliott prayed this, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that people must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Are we crisis people? Where our lives are sounding a note that makes Jesus so clear to people they have to do something about it. In a winsome, loving way, do our lives compel people to decide about Jesus? When you look at Jesus this morning, what do you see? Like Simeon, do you see God's salvation, your salvation? Or are you still trying to save yourself? Do you see your hope finally here? Are you still hoping for something else? Are you falling or rising with Jesus? Your answer doesn't just impact eternity. It actually impacts every day of your life, which brings us to our last point. Christmas brings our personal life into conflict. Mary gets so much more than she bargained for on this day. She comes to worship, but she leaves with a warning. Simeon says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword, it's pretty easy to see, means suffering. Simeon warns Mary, obviously, that Jesus will suffer, but now also that she will suffer Any mother could relate to that struggle. You love your children so much, you hate the thought of them suffering, and you know if they suffer, so will you. Mary would carry these words with her throughout Jesus' life, all the way to the cross. And she watched her boy die a terrible death. Just imagine watching the cross and remembering, and a sword will pierce your soul also. So a relationship with Jesus, it obviously brings hope and salvation. These are wonderful things, but it also brings a sword. It's part of the conflict of Christmas. Simeon's not the only one talking about it. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace 
to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Throughout history, people have tried to make it mean a physical sword. But Christ's sword has more to do with allegiance than violence. Jesus demands our supreme loyalty. And he knows that if we are with him, the world will often be against us. And the sword can cut in a lot of different ways. As we follow Christ, we can experience loneliness, rejection, and persecution. Sometimes just pinpricks from our friends. Other times the cost of our own life, the ultimate price. Our love for Jesus can bring a sword. It can happen at home. It can happen at school. It can happen at work. It can happen in our neighborhood or all the way on the other side of the world and everywhere in between. Sometimes our own family even thinks we've gone too far. It's something Jesus experiences himself in Mark 3.21 when they say, go and get him. He's out of his mind. So how do you think about suffering for Christ? It's an interesting topic in our culture. We don't want to talk about it. A lot of us maybe feel like we have resources to avoid it. But have you noticed we're always singing about it? Here are just a few verses from some, some of our favorite songs. Maybe you remember, whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. These songs about hope and suffering, these songs that stir us up. And so you see in theory and in song, we embrace suffering as part of God's plan. But in practice, we often have a really different theology of suffering. This can't be part of God's plan. We should avoid it at all costs. The gospel should only bring comfort, not conflict. But clearly Jesus suffered and he says on a number of occasions that we will too. Our response to suffering reveals a lot about us. Simeon says at the end, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So what's revealed when the sword comes? Do we seek comfort or do we continue to hope in Christ? Do we complain or do we keep rejoicing in our salvation? Do we focus on ourselves or do we look to Jesus? If we focus on ourselves, we only see the suffering. And we're so tempted to give up, to dial back our devotion and hope that the sword will pass by. But if we look to Jesus, we see something else. We see his glory. And the cost of not following him starts to scare us more than the cost of following him. We see his suffering and we can remember He's gone before us. He's already endured the ultimate sword for us. And we see his mission. We're reminded that, he, that we are his ambassadors. We're his body. So suffering gives us an opportunity to show the world that Jesus really is our hope and salvation. In our suffering, we can display his sufficiency. His grace is sufficient for us. So why are we so scared of the sword? I think we fear suffering because we don't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us. He walked our road. He felt our pain. He entered into our conflict to resolve it by dying on a cross to become our peace. He was cut off 
so that the sword would never cut us off from God's presence and God's love. And he rose again, and one day he will come again, and the conflict of Christmas will be over forever. This, friends, is the story that sustains us in suffering. Is it your story? If you're in Christ, this is your story. And if you don't know Christ, he invites you even today into this story by faith to turn from your empty hopes and put your hope in him, to receive this humbling gift of salvation, to take up your cross and follow him. The gospel story shapes us into people who share in Christ's sufferings so that we might also share in his glory. It's not about going and seeking suffering, but by God's grace remaining faithful, the world might see that he is our hope and salvation, even if suffering comes. As we close, I want to tell you about another Simeon. His name's Charles Simeon. He was born in 1759 and he served as the pastor at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for over 50 years. During his ministry, he endured seasons of incredible opposition, actually from his own people. He was appointed, and most of the congregation did not like the appointment. They wanted a different pastor. So imagine Simeon coming into this church, and you don't want him here, and so you either don't come, or what they did was they locked the pews so no one could sit down. So if you want to hear Simeon, you got to stand in the aisles or sit on the floor. And we would probably, if I experienced that, I would be tempted to say, well, they don't want me, so I should go somewhere else. Uh, clearly, this is not where God wants me. Simeon never quit. He was there for over 50 years, good seasons, tough seasons. When I hear someone like that, I say, why? How? How did you endure that kind of sword? So after 49 years at Trinity, a good friend asked him that question. And this is how Simeon replied. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. The conflict of Christmas means that we don't have to be sentimental or cynical about Christmas or a new year. Our hope has come, but our lives are still defined by waiting. Our salvation has arrived, but the struggle continues. While we wait, Jesus has called us to take up our cross and follow him. Brothers and sisters, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When life feels, maybe in 2018, like getting through a hedge, we can rejoice that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. So we do not lose heart. These light and momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the victory of Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the message that you are not afraid to come and dive into all this conflict and offer yourself as a solution to it, even giving your life, Jesus, on a cross. We thank you for the story that doesn't end there, that you rose again, that you will come back. So we pray as we wait that we would know you as Emmanuel, as God with us. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to wait well in this coming year, as you would give us grace to rejoice in your salvation that you would also give us grace to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Lord, we know these are light and momentary troubles. And we know also that you're returning 
And as your bride, we will run into our lover's arms. May we live with the hope of that day. Give us joy that you are indeed with us until uh, till the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.